Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Ben Peterson. I'm here with Christopher Hurtado again today, and we will be discussing Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6 today. So Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and Luke chapter 6 covers some of the same types of things, some same types of sayings, and we'll get into some different things then when we move into Luke chapter 6. You know, Christopher, I, as we were preparing for this week, I was feeling pretty intimidated by Matthew chapter 5. This chapter is kind of a discussion of one of the main hermeneutics that we have used for all of scripture for all these years. And I wasn't sure that I really felt like I was going to do it right. You know, like, (laughs) are we going to do this right? Are we going to present this right? But the more that I read it and just was thinking about it and kind of just came to it calmly, stuff started coming out to me for it that I felt uh, was meaningful. In Richard Rohr's book, called Jesus's Alternative Plan. He calls the Sermon on the Mount the blueprint for the Christian lifestyle. I love it. If anybody has not read that book or listened to it, that's what you should go grab is Richard Rohr, Jesus's Alternative Plan. It's a it's a discussion and contextualization of the Sermon on the Mount. It's fantastic. All of Richard Rohr's stuff is good. You know, there are so many books on the Sermon on the Mount, and we've read a few of them. And we have, you're right, we've used what we call a beatitudinal hermeneutic, right? We read everything else that we read through these core teachings of Jesus. So this Matthew chapter 5, this beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the way that this is set up by Matthew is an allusion to Moses, when Moses goes up on the Mount and receives the law. So what Matthew is doing here, like in other parts of Matthew, is he is setting Jesus up as the new Moses, right? The fulfillment of the law and the new lawgiver, just like Moses was the lawgiver. So here Jesus is going to go up on a mount and sit down and teach, just like Moses. Whereas Matthew, in a lot of these statements, particularly the Beatitudes, is going to take more of a spiritual approach and have more spiritual language. When we get to Luke, we're going to see that it's a little more material, a little more economic, something more about your day-to-day life. Again, Matthew is is taking a little bit more of a spiritual approach in the way that he comments on these things. You know, Ben, it makes more sense now to me why this is called the Sermon on the Mount, because there is no mount where this happened. You know, we could call it the Sermon on the Hill. Yeah. But of course, if you're saying Jesus is like Moses, then he needs to be on a mount. Right. I get it now. So the Matthew starts off with these Beatitudes, and we'll get into it as we're reading I count eight Beatitudes. Now, if you count the Beatitudes by Jesus saying, blessed are they who, then you actually do come out with nine. 
But to me, the last one, the so-called ninth one, is really just a reformulation or an explanation of the eighth. So I'm going to say there's eight Beatitudes. (laughs) The Beatitudes sort of position themselves in a hierarchical progression from one to the next. But what happens, interestingly enough, is when you get to the last one, the eighth Beatitude, the blessing is the same as the first. So the last returns to the first. And this makes this hierarchy no longer like a vertical, but it flattens it or makes it circular or horizontal. And this is an interesting rhetorical tool that Matthew uses to use sort of that that Greek hierarchical progression, but then to say, not only is it that, Jesus is going to turn this whole thing on its side. The whole hierarchy of society is going to be flattened. And those who are the least in the kingdom of heaven, right, just starting out the poor in spirit, are the same as those who have reached the pinnacle of this progression, the last, the persecuted in the kingdom of heaven. And so this eight, again, we talked about the symbolism of the number eight, and that's why I think it makes more sense to have it be eight Beatitudes, because eight is symbolic of a new creation. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the new Moses. This is a new creation. He's bringing the kingdom of heaven. And so it starts with the kingdom of heaven, and then the last beatitude is also the kingdom of heaven. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. You know, Ben, before we go into the beatitudes, let's talk a little bit about what we mean by beatitude, right? This is translating the Greek makarios, and you can say blessed, but you know, this isn't, it doesn't mean you're going to get blessings. Right? I'm, I'm putting that in, in typical LDS terms. If we do this, we get blessings, right? This is the transactional view of God. What it's really saying is something like, fortunate is the one who, happy is the one who, and even blessed is the one who is a valid translation. But we're not talking about, if I do this, I get that. It's just what happens. It's just a natural occurrence, right? The other way that that works, Christopher, is it's, Yeah, it's a statement of the state of being of the person, and it's equating that blessedness with that other thing that's going to come into play, right? The poor in spirit or the merciful or the peacemakers. And this is also, at the end of this discourse, we get, be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect, right? So all of these qualities aren't just presented as blessed are those who, but Again, it's a progression showing these are all actual qualities of God, of your Father who is in heaven. And so this state of blessedness is actually the state that God is in. And he's telling the people that you are experiencing something that is divine when you are in this state. It's a state of blessedness. I love it. Ben, before we go into the text, you told me another reason you were a little bit concerned about going through Matthew 5 is that there's so much to talk about mm-hmm. here, right? And we're trying to keep this to an hour, and sometimes, you know, <laughs> we go an hour and a half, two hours, right? But we have recorded over at Latter-day Contemplation, our sister podcast, starting with Shiloh before I became co-host with Riley, Riley and Shiloh, and then Riley and I recorded episodes on each of the Beatitudes, and then some, because we also have what did we do? We did the alchemy of the Beatitudes. You said that was your favorite. I think that is I mean, I I am not all the way caught up on the contemplation episodes. I think there's a couple that I haven't listened to yet, but that is still my 
my favorite so far. Talking about the Beatitudes as an alchemical process, fascinating. I love the points that were made in it. All you have to do is go over to Latter-day Contemplation and search for whichever Beatitude you're looking for, or Beatitudes as a keyword for your search, and you'll find lots and lots there to chew on. Matthew 5, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Again, I've been there. Ben, you've been there, right? I have been, well, I haven't been on the West Bank side. But you've been at the Sea of Galilee, right? Yes, on the east side. Right, okay, there you go. And there's no mountain, right? So this is the Sermon on the Hill, as opposed to Luke's The Sermon on the Plain. And I get, you know, with what you've pointed out, Ben, why it makes sense to call this the Sermon on the Mount, right? By the way, he set, right? This is how you teach. We mentioned this before. Uh, a rabbi sits to teach. You stand to read. You sit to teach. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This one's puzzling sometimes because it seems that to be poor in spirit means that you're lacking in spirit, but it's really the other way around. It's you are, because you're in the spirit, then you become in some sense empty of everything else. So in the state of being in the spirit, you are poor in everything else, right? So this is about emptying. Yeah. There's definitely ties between this concept of being poor in spirit and later when you're hungering and thirsting, right? And then also the meekness. These are similar concepts, but there's still a progression that's shown here in the awareness of the person of reality as they're moving along within these beatitudes. But this poor in spirit does, it denotes a type of, of emptying, particularly we've talked about it in terms of identity. Letting go is essentially what we're talking right. about here. Letting go and allowing what God has for you to, to come in and not have those things in the way. Well, Ben, from the time we're born, you know, people are telling us, you know, as soon as we can understand our mother tongue, we're finding out from others who we are. Mm. We're American. We're Latter-day Saints. We're whatever, right? right. So w- what is what is underneath all of that? We weren't any of that before, right? So what are we? We're children of God. Yeah. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, we have some sort of commentary on this verse, if you will, from the Book of Mormon, we get this baptismal covenant that says, you know, mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. I've always thought that was an interesting reformulation of this concept. And it's not just telling people that, you know, mourning is a blessed state, right? That's that's still a divine experience to mourn. And it's also a divine experience to be comforted. And so we get from the Book of Mormon, this baptismal covenant, that not only are these divine experiences, but experiencing them with another person, being there with them in that is also a divine experience and part of our covenant. It is. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is quite a statement, I think, Christopher, because... What do we have at this time? We have the great empire of Rome. I mean, they're the ones that have taken over the world. They're the ones that rule the world. And that is the opposite of meekness, right? The way that their military might is. And Jesus is coming and saying, the meek, the humble, those who are oppressed, 
those are the ones that are going to inherit the earth. That's, you know, a complete turning of everything on its head. That would be a surprise to all of the the Roman generals and Caesars, right? They have this project, this Pax Romana, that means peace through victory, right? If we just bring the whole world under Roman subjugation, there will be peace. So there's nobody left to fight, and they're all Romans, Mm -hmm. and now we can have peace. That's not the project of Jesus, which is peace through justice. I want to say something a little bit more about meekness. My favorite definition of meekness has come from Richard Rohr, and I think it really helps me understand what's going on here with this. And he calls meekness forgiving reality. There's a lot to sit with just in those two words for me. And the more that I've thought about these Beatitudes in context of that definition, forgiving reality, uh, the more that I've found there is there. I love that. That reminds me of Loving What Is, Byron Katie's book, Mm -hmm. Loving What Is, which is a Buddhist concept, right? Yeah. There's no point in kicking against the pricks. Fighting against reality is just kicking against the pricks. So this idea of the project of Jesus being peace through justice brings us right into the next verse, right? Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. But this needs a little bit of an explanation, right? Because there's no justice mentioned in this verse, except that righteousness, which is a favorite term of Matthew, translates dikaiosune. Dikaiosune is justice. Not the abstract concept, that's dike, but justice in a person, as righteousness is someone who does right. Justice is someone who does what is just, right? Mm. Or justice is what happens when someone does what what is just. So it's interesting because righteousness then becomes not this ethical term where I do all the things, I keep all the commandments, I keep my covenants, I pray however many times a day, check all the boxes, right? And it's about who I am. And that's, I think that's how we think about righteousness, Ben. Whereas I'm saying righteousness, because it's about justice, it's not an ethical term, it's a political term. It's about how you treat other people. Mm. Now, of course, these two are tied together, right? How I treat other people says everything about who I am. And we're going to have some talk about the fruit of the tree later that relates to this, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is, you know, it's so beautiful, right? Because again, mercy, we've talked about mercy as coming from the term for womb in Hebrew and the term for mercy in Hebrew are related And so as we come into the New Testament, yes, we're dealing with Greek, but we need to remember that and bring that with us, right? Mercy is something, this kind of compassion, this kind of mercy, this kind of feeling that we get of being, I want to say enwombed. That's not a word. Mm -hmm. I'm borrowing the form of entombed. We're enwombed. We're enveloped, as it were, in God's love, in God's womb. And we don't have to think of God in this case as masculine, right? or male. We can think of God in this sense as feminine or female even. The part that hit me really strongly in that podcast on the alchemy of the Beatitudes was when you got to this one on Blessed Are the Merciful. I remember Morgan was talking about how the process brought about a culture of mercy. And it reminded me of when I had had discussions with my brother and then We also recorded on Moses chapter 7, which was a discussion about Zion. The idea was that Zion was built on a culture of mercy. 
And my brother had said something like this, I'd be paraphrasing him, that you know, Zion would be brought about not as people sinned less and less, but as they forgave more and more. You know, Ben, that's very much in line with, again, on Latter-day Contemplation, we talked with Catherine Suntag, the author of The Mother Tree, and that's very much in line with what she was saying about what a Zion society looks like, only she had more to say, and I recommend the listener check out that episode. It may be our best episode yet. It was a great interview. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The beatific vision, wow, I mean, what does that take to see the face of God? purity of heart. It really takes purifying our own heart, right? Polishing the mirror of the soul so that it reflects the divine. The divine is in us, but when you see through a glass darkly, it's hard to see. I have called this my favorite scripture multiple times. It has a lot of meaning in it to me. And one of the ways that I look at this scripture that has brought a lot of meaning is realizing that this isn't transactional, like you said, Christopher. It isn't once you purify your heart, then you'll have a theophany and you'll see God, right? We kind of think about that sometimes in in our theological terms. I think what this means is that those who have a pure heart will see God everywhere. They're going to see God in the world. They're going to see God in others. And they're going to see God in themselves. Like you said, when you look in the mirror, I love that. And that's what it means to have a pure heart, is that you see God. And what happens when you see God in others, that's where the progression of the very next beatitude comes, because you will naturally be a peacemaker. That's beautiful, Ben. And I, I love how DNC 98 talks about that as well, with renouncing war, proclaiming peace, and seeking diligently to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and children of the fathers. That's the whole idea here, is that when we see God in others, we see God in the world and we see God in ourselves, then naturally the the progression is bringing about peace. That's beautiful, Ben. You know, I think this is a good place to pause and mention the idea that these sayings may not have all been shared by Jesus at one time in this event we call the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I, I just think after what you said, Ben, I thought we really need to stop talking right? We need to pause. We need to think about these things. We need to reflect. And, you know, when when someone's speaking, can you imagine Jesus coming and saying all these things? I mean, most of it would just be lost on the listener. Sure. Chances are you'd latch on to one thing, and that would be enough, by the way. Maybe, you know, sure. one listener latches on to the first beatitude, another to the second, another to the third. Ben, you know, this would be yours. But when you're writing, you can just take all these things and put them together because you know that the person reading can reread. Right. They can take their time. We're not doing that here. This reminds me of, of my experience of reading things like the Tao Te Ching in one sitting. You can do that, and that's valid, and you can get a sense of what's there. And it can wash over you the way sometimes when you read poetry, if you're focused on the form, you don't necessarily notice the content, right? And you still come out of it with, peace, right? With beauty, uh, with some sense of beauty and peace, right? And yet you're missing the content maybe. So there's a lot to think about here. And that's why why we spent over an hour on each beatitude on Latter-day Contemplation. 
But you're right. The next beatitude is blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, this is interesting because a son of God, as Jesus has been called, and other kings before him who are in that relationship with God, are typically, not with Jesus, but typically a king is a protector. The archetypal king is a protector. This means he's going to go to war Mm -hmm. at some point, if need be, at least. That's not the case with Jesus. It's interesting because here the children of God are peacemakers, not war makers. Hmm. It really turns the thing on its head. A lot of what Jesus does is turn conventional wisdom on its head. Right. Even, you know, even the ideas of the of the Deuteronomists, you know, of, of much of the, the writings of the Old Testament. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there, Christopher, we have the return to that first beatitude that says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here we've had this progression of these beatitudes, but then when we get to the end, it just starts right back over again. And the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. One eternal round. No hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. That's important. Progression, Whether you think of it no as, hierarchy. Right. Yeah. Now, whether you think of it as circular or flat, the important thing to note is there's no hierarchy. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Falsely isn't in all the manuscripts, right? But blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you. It's counterintuitive, right? You don't feel blessed when that's happening. Hmm. I mean, those are cursings, right? It's, yeah, it's a complete, like, seems like a contradiction. Definitely counterintuitive. But then if you're doing as Richard Rohr says, and you're forgiving reality, right? If you're loving what is, you realize nothing's wrong. Things are as they are. Or if you're, yeah, like you said, if you're seeing reality as God sees reality for what it is, then all of these insults or persecution that are aimed at you, Jesus is saying, you know, I'm experiencing these things too. Or he's saying, this is the experience God has then you're blessed. You're having a divine experience. (laughs) Or he's saying, let me tell you who you really are. You're a child of God. Yeah, rather than what people are telling you you are, yeah. That social mirror can be somewhat of a funhouse mirror oftentimes. If you're looking for your true self, then again, you want to look in the mirror of the soul. And it does have to be polished, right? This is what we mean by purifying the heart. The heart has to be pure, It has to be polished to reflect the divinity within. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You're not the only one, right? You're not alone. It's typical, you know, you're not alone. I remember when Shiloh and another colleague from grad school, I went to, I was an undergraduate philosophy student with Shiloh as my colleague. And then I studied for my master's in nonproliferation and terrorism studies with Jared Hensley. Jared Hensley came up with the idea that we should make a documentary exploring the question, is hyperactive nonviolence realistic today? You know, people asked us, usually they said, what? (laughs) What does that mean, right? (laughs) What is nonviolence? That's one question. What is hyperactive nonviolence? And I said, well, you know, pacifism gives the impression that you don't do anything. If you're a pacifist, you're you're mm. passive, right? Yeah. 
we're not passive. We're hyperactive. Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't passive. He was hyperactive, right? And then what does that look like? They would ask me. I would say, I don't know. For me, you know, for you, I don't know. For me, it looks like making this documentary. And so we went around asking that question of religious and other leaders, right? And so because this documentary was on nonviolence, there came a point, you know, we're just talking, the three of us. We talked a lot. Obviously, we're working on this project together. We came to the realization at one point that most people who are hyperactively nonviolent aren't received well by people who prefer violence over nonviolence and become the victims of violence. And we just looked at each other and we puzzled and we thought, isn't it interesting that we have such strong, independent wives? And and we really had this moment of, this might not end well for us (laughs) (laughs) in terms of our, our earthly life, right? If we, if we have this commitment to nonviolence, we have to be prepared to die, right? We have to be prepared to take up our cross and follow Christ to death ultimately, right? All the way. Matthew 5, 13, ye are the salt of the earth. This is a new pericope. This is about the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. There's a lot to say about salt, Ben. The thing about salt in this kind of spiritual discourse is it's something you have to experience for yourself. I can tell you all about salt chemically. I can tell you about its color. I can tell you where it comes from, etc. But what is salt? What does it taste like? What is salt? What is it about salt that makes it salt? That's something you have to taste for yourself. The Sufis talk about spiritual lessons as tasting good. This is something Joseph Smith did too, right? He said that tastes good Hmm. when he heard a teaching that he thought really resonated with him spiritually. He said that tastes good. That's what the Sufis say too. You have to experience salt. You have to experience it for yourself. No one can explain it to you. The next pericope is verses 14 through 16, the light of the world. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. I grew up with a nanny, Ben. Her name was Mary, and she played the guitar. And she was a Pentecostal. She converted to Latter-day Saintism. During a time that she was actually separate from my family, she went to live with us in Venezuela came back to the States and converted at the same time we were converting in Venezuela. Mm. But she always still sang with us. She played the guitar, she sang with us, and we always sang this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. (laughs) Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. I love that song. And we did, of course, actually hold hands and sing Kumbaya. (laughs) Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Isn't that interesting? They don't see your good works and glorify you, right? It's through God that we can do these things. My favorite scripture, Ben, is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That's how it happens. And that's why all the credit goes to God. Okay, the next pericope is on the law and the prophets, verses 17 through 20. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. 
So these jots and tittles, these are little jiggers in Hebrew writing and even in Greek writing. It's like minding your P's and Q's or making mm-hmm. sure all your T's are crossing your T's and dotting your I's. Yeah. There you go. Crossing your T's and dotting your I's. There you go. So Jesus hasn't come to to destroy the law or the prophets. Th- these are the most important parts of the Torah, right? And the Nevi'im, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah and the prophets. So Torah often gets translated the law, but it's better translated as instruction rather than law, because we think of law in like legal terms, but we're talking about instruction there. One of the ways that I've thought about this word to fulfill, I've thought about it in more of a rhetorical sense, and I don't think that that has been very helpful. What we're looking at here for me is if I replace that word with act out or make reality, you know, I have come to act out the instruction, the teachings. I have come to make them reality, right? You're going to see me actually put them in place. I'm not came, I didn't come to destroy them. I came to show you what they are really about, not just in word, but in deed, so that you can actually see what what the purpose of these things is. I love that. Yeah. Jesus as a model, right? Mm-hmm. Fulfilling the law every whit in his own person, right? Showing us the way. Come, follow me. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we we haven't gotten to hell yet, but notice that anyone who doesn't keep these commandments, anyone who breaks them and even teaches other men to break them, or other people to break them, right? To be to use inclusive language. Remember, in, in the Bible, uh, we don't have men. We have anthropos. It doesn't mean men. It means human beings. They don't end up in hell. They end up the least in the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Isn't that interesting, Ben? Yeah. We'll have to go into hell more when we come to it. Well, and also, you know, we think of kingdom of heaven as this post-mortem condition. And hell, too. Yeah. But for Jesus and his disciples at this time, the way that they're talking— this is the coming kingdom, right? This is not just a a new spiritual order, right? This is conceptualized as a new political order. So this is on earth, right? This isn't just after you die kind of thing. We're talking about a political situation in many ways, even though it becomes renegotiated later as a spiritual. And, And obviously Jesus is talking about both, but the people at the time, the majority of them would have conceptualized this as a political reality, not some post-mortem spiritual reality. And if it's here, that makes sense since Jesus said it's within you and you're here, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And by the way, maybe you take it with you, right? And if you didn't have it here, you probably can't take it with you, right? There's that too. <laughs> For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, this righteousness here, this is justice, right? The scribes and the Pharisees are not being just. And the justice that Jesus speaks of, again, his project is peace through justice. It's compassion. We're going to see in this week's reading, we haven't got to it yet. What we have seen, you've mentioned at least, it's from the end of the chapter, we haven't gotten to it yet. Be therefore perfect. This is like being holy. And this is the scribes and Pharisees, right? They have this purity culture. They want to be holy like God is holy. And they think that it's all about pious performances. 
And at every turn, Jesus says, nope, it's not about that. That's not enough. It's not that you wouldn't do those things. It's that they're not sufficient. They're necessary, but they're not sufficient. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in the danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother, this is what happens first before you murder, right? This is We're talking about murder here, by the way, not just killing. What happens before you murder? You're angry. By the way, uh, brother, this is brother or sister. Yes, Adelphos translates brother, but there is no other word for sibling, right? So there is a word for sister, but you can say brother and you can mean brother or sister. So sibling, yeah. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother or sister without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Oh, we got to hell. Yeah. <laughs> One note there, Christopher, is the, the Book of Mormon version of this sermon omits that without cause phrase. It just says whosoever is angry with his brother. That's an even higher standard. Because you could always come up with a reason, right? <laughs> then a lot of people read this and they want to know, what is the actual word that I can't say to my brother or sister? Raka. Mm. And it's not about that, right? That's not the idea. It's an example. There are many things that you could say and that I have said, right? That, that have put me in danger of the council. What do you think this council has been? The Sanhedrin? Yeah, I mean, that seems to be at least... The metaphor there, right? He's saying, you know, this people there to judge you. But I think the intention is of some other type of judgment that would happen in a spiritual sense, right? So it's not about the Sanhedrin and it's not about the word Raka. It's about what it does to you. Yeah. Right. And in, as a matter of fact, it brings you in danger of hellfire. There's guilt there. So now we go into hell. Now, Ben, you and I both love Dante, but we're not reading Dante, we're reading the Bible. And in the Bible, there aren't that many mentions of hell, surprisingly. For as much as Christians talk about hell, there aren't that many mentions of it in the Bible. They do all come from Jesus, interestingly. And usually we're translating here Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. So Ben, I've been to Jerusalem and I've seen the Valley of Hinnom. Now, it is no longer a place where Canaanites sacrifice children. That's not happening anymore. Is it a landfill? <laughs> It's no longer a landfill. It's no longer a place where people dump their trash and burn it so that there's always fire burning there to burn all the trash. There's no gnashing of teeth, you know, dogs fighting over scraps. That's not happening because it's not a dump, but that's what it was. And so it becomes this metaphor. And this is something that we've experienced. I know I have been. Have you experienced hell? Have you been to hell? I've been there. Yeah. I want to share from a book by Rob Bell called Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. Typical Rob Bell title. I love it. I remember arriving in Kigali, Rwanda in December 2002, he writes, and driving from the airport to our hotel. Soon after leaving the airport, I saw a kid, probably 10 or 11, with a missing hand standing by the side of the road. Then I saw another kid just down the street missing a leg, then another in a wheelchair. Hands, arms, legs... I must have seen 50 or more teenagers with missing limbs in just those first several miles. My guide explained that during the genocide, one of the ways to most degrade and humiliate your enemy was to remove an arm or a leg of his young child with a machete, so that years later he would have to live with the reminder 
of what you did to him. Do I believe in a literal hell? Of course. Those aren't metaphorical missing arms and legs. Have you ever sat with a woman while she talked about what it was like to be raped? How does a person describe what it's like to hear a five-year-old boy whose father has just committed suicide ask, when is daddy coming home? How does a person describe that unique look, that ravaged, empty stare you find in the eyes of a cocaine addict? I've seen what happens when people abandon all that is good and right and kind and humane. Once I conducted a funeral for a man I'd never met. I'm going to summarize this story. This is in his lecture uh, or his sermon on Ecclesiastes that we've recommended, right, on YouTube. What's it called? The in- an introduction, introduction to, to joy. joy. Yeah. In this funeral, everybody was upset because the guy who died rewrote his will right before he died so that the most people would be unhappy with the most other people in the room when it's read. I mean, this is a guy who was just miserable and wanted to make sure that everybody else was miserable too. I tell these stories, Rob Bell continues, because it is absolutely vital that we acknowledge that love, grace, and humanity can be rejected from the most subtle rolling of the eyes to the most violent degradation of another human. We are terrifyingly free to do as we please. God gives us what we want. And if that's hell, we can have it. We have that kind of freedom, that kind of choice. We are that free. We can use machetes if we want to. Way to spoil the mood, huh? (laughs) That's hell. Just like the kingdom of heaven. It's here. It's now. It's a choice. It's a choice we make. We're that free. We can choose heaven or we can choose hell. And it's all about how we treat others and how we see others. This is why righteousness, right, dikaiosune, this idea of justice, treating others justly, this is what's meant by being pure of heart and seeing God. This is why that, if we can be pure of heart, if we can see God in ourselves and in others, if we can have mercy, compassion, choose heaven over hell, that's it. There's no if then, right? You're there. You're already there. It's a choice. Verse 23, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother or sister hath thought against thee. Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother or sister, and then come and offer thy gift. I think this really puts a damper on the checklist gospel, doesn't it? Hmm. It's saying your heart has to be in the right place, not just your hands. Yeah, heart and hands. This is what in the Islamic Tradition is called niya or intention, right? Intention, the intent of the heart makes all the difference. And this is the difference between the Pharisees that the gospel writers call hypocrites, right? And what Jesus is teaching, which is not just pious performances, the place where we come from, the heart, when we worship, when we talk to our fellow man. There's a quote. From Marianne Williamson, it's often attributed to Nelson Mandela, and that's because he quoted it in his inaugural speech. But it's not his words. It's from Marianne Williamson. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented? fabulous. Actually, who are you not to be? You're a child of God. 
Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. That's the part that was quoted by Nelson Mandela. And the next line reads, As we're liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. This is the Zion Project. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him or her, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing, which is the last penny, right? Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. It's interesting, Ben, that this verse is only speaking to men. That's the way it's written. I don't think it's actually only speaking to men. It's just that that's the way it's written. I don't think that women are exempt from lust. I think the context of something like this, even if in the narrative of Matthew, right, he's turning around and teaching, there would have been women there. I think the context of this is that largely teaching is done to men. That's right. When you look at an ancient context of Matthew writing to an audience, you know, that audience is typically addressed to men, but the implication is never that it's exempting women for sure. Yeah. And we'll have more to say about that when we come to what is said about divorce, right? But the thing is, you know, it's the women actually have in this context, fewer choices. I was pondering while you were speaking, you know, I thought, do they even have the opportunity to do this wrong? <laughs> I don't know. It would be hard, right? It's not impossible. And and if you're thinking of the woman, the woman at the well, the Samaritan at the well, right? We covered that last time, right? And it's not necessarily the case that she was promiscuous. We, we covered that in our reading of, of those verses. She didn't have control over her marriage situation. That was determined for her. So the fact that she was with different husbands wasn't necessarily her choice. Yeah. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body shall be should be cast into hell. This is a little bit of hyperbole. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it does make the point. There's several statements that are hyperbolic in this discussion here to, to make a point. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. This is the verse I was thinking of, Ben, a moment ago. You know, so there's a verse in the Old Testament that this is really sort of, it's like a rabbinical commentary on that verse, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and we can say that Jesus in this, or the author in this case, right? Whether Jesus said it or whether the author says Jesus said it, it's the same. The idea is that it's taking one of the positions out of multiple different positions that there were in the rabbinical tradition about what that verse meant. So let's read that verse, Ben. Deuteronomy 24.1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand. 
and send her out of his house. This uncleanness that's spoken of here is what's in question. What is the meaning of that? And so the rabbis argued over this, right? They have different interpretations, anywhere from she burnt your dinner, Rabbi Hillel, right, to she fornicated, Rabbi Shammai. The latter is the interpretation that Jesus is offering here, right? The idea that only fornication is cause for divorce. And by the way, you don't get the same out in Luke. There is no out in Luke. Yeah. Again, you've heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. This has echoes of meekness in it for me, Ben. Yeah, I see that too. This forgiving reality or just accepting things the way they are and just stating things as a fact, you know, the yay, yay, nay, nay type of thing. You know, I don't, I don't need to insist on something by swearing. Oh, I, I, I promise, I promise, I promise, I swear, you know, on my mother's grave or whatever, right? You just make a statement of reality and you stick to that because that's where you live. You live in reality. Yeah. Ye have heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Resist not evil. Don't we spend a lot of time talking about resisting evil? <laughs> you know, the NRSV translates this verse, do not resist an evil doer. And I think that's probably better because this seems to, when we say do not resist evil, this seems to be saying like, do not resist like this whole concept of evil, anything, you know, the, the idea of evil. And it's like, that doesn't really make any sense. But the translation, do not resist an evil doer starts making more sense in the context of the rest of the verse. It does. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. You know, much has been said, and I've heard contradictory, you know, just... The idea here is that if someone backhand slaps you across the face, they're doing it with their right hand, and that hits you on your right cheek. If you then turn your face where you're turning your left cheek towards them, the implication is, okay, now you're supposed to make a fist and hit me in the face with the fist. The cultural context of this is that if you backhand slap somebody, that's something you do to an inferior, like a servant or a child or something like that. But hitting someone with your fist, that's something you do to an equal. And so the statement here is that you don't fight back violently, but you stand up to it and insist on your equality. This is a nonviolent fight, though. Right. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. We're actually, we're inching our way into some really subversive stuff, Ben. And it becomes more and more obvious as we go through this, right? So there's a sense in which you're saying with both of these, right? With turning the other cheek, with going the extra mile, that you're willing. So if someone is is acting violently against you, if someone is compelling you or forcing you, not recognizing your own agency, right? That you then have 
the opportunity not only to be meek, right? But also there's a sense in which I think, again, it's subversive because you are saying you don't actually have any power over me. The other thing I think that it says is that pure in heart, if you can look at that person that is persecuting you, as the later Beatitudes said, and see God, then you can call upon that part of them, right? That divine part of them to come forth, to say, no, you are better than this. I'm better than what you think I am, and you are better than you're behaving right now as well. I'm reminded of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Here's where it gets really subversive, right? We're talking here about an outer and inner garment. In today's terms, your clothes and your underwear. If someone wants to take your clothes, you give him your underwear too. Where does that leave you? It leaves you standing naked. Right? So you're being judged and you're maybe in court, right? You're in this uh, judgment situation and you say, you know what? Here, you can take it all. There's nothing else you can take from me. One of the other points here too is that it wasn't common for people to have maybe more than one set of clothes. Clothes were very expensive in ancient times. And so for the average person that had just one set of clothes, having an outer cloak and then their inner, giving both of those away, losing both of those, you know, meant you were really, really left with nothing. And we are talking about something rhetorical here, maybe hyperbolic. I don't know, you know, what literalness we're talking about here. Obviously, people can see what Jesus is getting at. The symbolism he's getting at here is that you don't just stop at allowing people to persecute you. You recognize their humanity as well, and you go after that humanity and call it out. I love that. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. In the context in which this is taught, the idea is that any Roman soldier could ask you to carry his gear for a mile, and you had to do it. If that would happen, again, you choose. So that's not a choice. You have to do that. The Roman soldier telling you, you have to do this, you know you have to do it, right? It's different when you say, you know what? I'm going to go a second mile. This is my choice. You can't make me do this, right? I'm doing it out of my own choice, and I'm telling you this. I'm showing you this, right, by going two miles instead of one. You're insisting on your own humanity, and in that, you are also recognizing, again, the humanity of the other person by serving them above and beyond. And again, calling that humanity out of them, right? Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. This idea of loving your enemies is not a widespread idea. It isn't unique to Jesus. It was taught by the Stoics, and we can find instances of it in the, even in the Old Testament, but it is not the norm, right? It's not the way. Th- you don't love your enemies. You love your friends. You hate your enemies, right? By the way, one of my favorite things to say about making friends out of enemies is, look, the idea of a companion, right? This comes from the Latin companis, with bread. You break bread with friends. You never eat with enemies. If you run into an old friend, you say, we should get together for lunch, right? 
But you don't say this with an enemy. You don't invite people over to eat that who, whom you don't like, right? So I say, if I were to add, can I add a verse here, Ben? Mm-hmm. Can I throw in my own verse somewhere? 43B, as it were, or 43C for Christopher. <laughs> invite your enemies over for dinner and turn them into friends. Because that's what happens, right? When you eat with people, when you share with them. And to give, I mean, it's just, it's kind of bizarre to say that, right? I know, I mean, a lot of these things are counterintuitive, right? But let me give a less hyperbolic example. Have you ever been to a mosque? When I was teaching Islamic ethics at Utah Valley University in Orem, I took my students once a semester to the mosque. Most of them had never been to a mosque. They had never even met a Muslim. All they knew about Muslims was whatever they heard on the news. These were my favorite papers to read, Ben. Every semester, their response papers to their mosque visit, this was for extra credit. They had to go and they had to write something. And their experience was usually something like this. It was just like going to church. The people were so nice to me. The imam talked about the same kind of things they talk about over the pulpit at my church, etc. along the same lines. They always had such positive experiences. And, you know, if all you have is the news and you're watching ISIS on the news or something, you don't know anything about Muslims. Go find your neighbors who are Muslims. Invite them over. Ask them if you can come to the mosque. Ask me to go with you. I'll go with you. Call me up. Let's go. Yeah, that Christopher, that idea you brought up of, of eating together, I think that is at least in part the symbolism behind the sacrament or the Eucharist, right? That people gather and eat together and thereby they're becoming one. They're dispelling that enemies. Some of my favorite commentary on this verse comes from that 1976 First Presidency message from Spencer W. Kimball. It's called The False Gods We Worship. One of the things that stands out to me about this message is that it's written in the ensign that comes out just before the bicentennial celebration of the United States of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, right? And I looked in that ensign, and there's all kinds of different articles that have sort of nationalistic flavors to them with this bicentennial. But the very first message in this ensign is this talk that is just metaphorically slaps you across the face in some ways. (laughs) So here's one of my favorite excerpts from this talk. Spencer W. Kimball says, We are a warlike people, easily distracted from our assignment of preparing for the coming of the Lord. When enemies rise up, we commit vast resources to the fabrication of gods of stone and steel, ships, planes, missiles, fortifications, and depend on them for protection and deliverance. When threatened, we become anti-enemy instead of pro-kingdom of God. We train a man in the art of war and call him a patriot, thus, in the manner of Satan's counterfeit of true patriotism, perverting the Savior's teaching, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. He goes on to say this, Our assignment is affirmative to forsake the things of the world as ends in themselves, to leave off idolatry and press forward in faith, to carry the gospel to our enemies, that they might no longer be our enemies. 
Amen. Yeah. The easiest way to find this talk, thanks to our friend Connor Boyack, is to go to warlikepeople.com. There was a billboard once, wasn't there, Ben? Yeah. Wasn't it yeah. glorious? He just put that up. We are work people. Yeah, I remember him doing that. Perhaps there'll be an anniversary billboard someday. Are you listening, Connor? Let's have that billboard back. <laughs> I'm going to start at verse 44 because we got carried away there. We did. I mean, this is <laughs> this is Latter-day it. Like, peace this studies. Is the, this, this is, is it, right? This, if if you had like if somebody said, "Hey, give me Jesus in one sentence," might this be it? Love your enemies. Yeah. Yeah. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? Even the tax collectors love their friends and hate their enemies. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. When we talked about this last verse earlier, it was the conclusion to the whole chapter. It occurs to me that it could be read as more closely related just to these last few verses. But I think it's both. So what do we mean by perfect? I think everyone's heard the idea that this word can be translated complete. In Sufism, there's the insan kamil, the complete or perfect human being. For Muslims, Muhammad serves this function, right? He becomes the perfect human being, the model to follow. For Christians, it's Jesus. He fulfills the law, just as Muhammad was thought to do for Muslims, right? It's the same idea. I think perfection often within our linguistic conceptualization means like, you know, without blemish or, you know, no scratches, absolutely immaculate. But perfection here is, like you said, completeness, right? Like wholeness of person. Again, I've referenced this a couple of times, great episode, the integration of the shadow, right? The shadow. You're fully integrated. You don't have parts of you that are spread out on different things, but you have reconciled all the parts of yourself into one. You've gone through that beatitudinal process. You've gone through the, you know, the emptying and you've come to a place where you have accepted reality for what it is. You've accepted yourself for who you are and your true identity as a child of God. And then you arrive here realizing, hey, you can be complete. Amen and amen. That brings us to Luke 6, Ben. Yeah. And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. Now, corn is just the term for all grain in antiquity. Yeah. Who knows what this is? This is better was. translated as grain, not corn, because grain. corn, the way that we think of it, right? The big ears of corn, that's a new world thing that didn't exist. Over there like that, we have in that form. So this is just like small ears of grain that you you pick it off, you rub it in your hands so that you just get the the kernels and then you you chew that. And it was allowed, you know, to mm-hmm. pluck it by hand. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you couldn't take a, a, a sickle to it, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever you could take by just plucking it by hand, that was allowed. But not on the Sabbath. Not on the Sabbath. Because you're harvesting, at least according to the Pharisaical tradition. That's right. 
And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? And Jesus answering them said, Have ye not read so much as this what David did when himself was in hunger, and they were, and they which were with him? How he went into the house of God and did take and eat the showbread, and gave also to them that were with him, which it is not lawful to eat, but for the priests alone. That bread was supposed to stay there until the next week, and the, the priests would eat it. And he said unto them, that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered, which means who knows what, maybe paralyzed, right? And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. This is sort of the opposite of the meekness, right? Of forgiving the, the world for what it is, right? Loving what is, right? This is looking for something to be wrong. Hoping something wrong happens. Yeah. So that you can set yourself up as the judge and the accuser, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's very much related to the Satan type of thing. Hasatan, the accuser. Yeah. Because you're wanting an opportunity to accuse. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And saving life in the Jewish tradition is always the right thing to do. And looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness and commune one with another what they might do to Jesus. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. So here we have Jesus again tanking up in the wilderness or on the mountain, right? Seeking power from God with which to heal. So Christopher, in in verse 11, the word that we have here translated in the KJV as madness In NRSV, it's translated as fury, but the commentary says that this Greek word, anoia, usually is translated as lack of understanding. I thought that was interesting. You know, anoia, right? This is related to metanoia, I believe, which is repentance. So this has to do with- They're out of their minds, minds. Yeah, they're out of their minds. It's this opposite of a, of a, a healthy mental condition, right? So this is interesting. It says, filled with madness. So- if we say, oh, it's actually that that word madness is lack of understanding, then it would be something like this, which is awkward in English, filled with a lack of understanding. Yeah. It'd be a strange translation, right? But it, I, I, I kind of yeah. like it. You have to chew on it a little bit. I think that it's yeah. interesting that when a person is filled with anger, there's no room for understanding. Or reason, right? Yeah. And this reminded me of a statement by Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a, a Vietnamese Buddhist monk. And he said this. He said, understanding and love are not two things, but just one. And so in this moment where they lack understanding, right, they cannot have love, only anger. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. So these disciples versus apostles, right? Disciples are followers. And by the way, following here means literally following. You're giving up everything because you're going to follow Jesus around, you know, from place to place. 
Yeah, when we talk about following Jesus, we're talking about it in a metaphorical sense. When they were talking about following Jesus, they were talking about it in a literal sense, right? They they actually left their jobs and and their houses and and families and followed him around on on his ministry. You know, there in uh, verse twelve, Christopher, it says that he goes up in the mountain to pray. In Matthew, the mountains are associated with an experience with God. Again, you know, think Moses, like the Sermon on the Mount kind of thing. And elsewhere in Scripture, we talked about this when we talked about mountains. They're symbolic of the edge of the known. This would be both laterally, you know, like mountains would surround a valley where where people would live, but also vertically. They're borders in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Also vertically, right? They, They reach up into the heavens into the sky. So these are the edge of the known, and, and that's where you go to find God. They, they hold up the sky, and their foundations extend all the way down, similar to the cosmic tree, as again, covered by Catherine Ned Suntag in, in our interview with her, and in her book, of course, The Mother Tree. Yeah, if you remember Jonah, he says in his prayer that he went down even to the roots of the mountains, Right, so right. it's interesting. He's comparing mountains with trees there, in in a sense. Right, we have that imagery at least in in our mind. I think it's interesting here that he's spending the night in prayer. So night also has a different symbolism within like Matthew and Luke than it does John. Remember how Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and this is because one of John's whole themes is about light. And so if Nicodemus is coming at night, like Right, it's this sort of imagery that there's there's this darkness going on, this secret type of thing. But in Matthew, the night has more of a Jewish type of symbolism flavor to it. Night is the time of creation. Creation begins at night, right? That's when the first day starts. It's when the day starts is is when the sun goes down, not when it comes up. So something new is coming in the morning when the night is spent with God here. And this, to me, was reminiscent of like Ruth going into Boaz at night, right? Yeah. And so then you get this next verse, right? After he spends the night with God up in the mountain, he comes down and calls his apostles unto him. And he's he's now organizing, creating something new. I think that's sort of the imagery that Luke is presenting to us here of this, this organization calling of the apostles. Beautiful. Simon whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes. Simon's being called a zealot here, Ben. Yeah, this isn't Simon Peter, it's a different Simon, right? Yeah. What do you think? They they have it capitalized in the King James Bible. Are we talking about a capital Z zealot or a lowercase Z zealot? Yeah, I was thinking about that as well because NRSV has it capitalized, but the zealot party didn't exist at the time of Jesus, so there weren't any capital Z zealots. This is either sort of written back in the text, like like maybe somebody is, you know, Matthew or, or Luke, obviously in this case, is looking back and thinking about all of the, you know, political inclinations of this Simon and thinking, oh, that guy was a capital Z zealot, right? <laughs> but it, this is anachronistic. It could be a lowercase z zealot that just meant, you know, he was zealous in, in some way. But uh, the zealot yeah. party were, they were insurrectionists. Right. Now, of course, this is written later than mm-hmm. the time in which Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so the author could be meaning capital Z zealot. It's just that at the time, there wasn't a capital Z zealot for this to be talking about. 
Yeah. And Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. This we'll have to talk about more when the time comes, right? Whether Judas Mm -hmm. Iscariot was a traitor or not, because there are different stories about Judas Iscariot. And he came down with them and stood in the plain and the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Here we have again Jesus preaching and healing and the next verse, and they that were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed. So also casting out demons. They're- and we have a crowd gathering. We're going to have another sermon here. We we all know the Sermon on the Mount, but do we know the Sermon on the Plain? That's this sermon. Yeah, this is the, the KJV says plain. The NRSV says level place. So this is seems to be, you know, as opposed to a mountain or a hill, right? So this is yeah. a different place. I'll remind the listener, you said earlier, Ben, that there's a difference not only in the location, right, but in the character of the of the sermons, right? The, the Sermon on the Mount is a more heavenly, right, more spiritual. Mm-hmm. The Sermon on the Plain or on the level place is more earthly, right? Yeah. Seems to be related to the setting, right, <laughs> in some ways when mm-hmm. thinking about something you know, more, more spiritual in the air, up higher. Right. There's some possibilities here that I've, I was thinking through. Obviously there's some more things that could be going on here. The sermons they're recorded differently. So they could have easily been given at different places. You know, if we want to try to reconcile, I guess you could try to say that, okay, these are two different sermons given at two different times in two different places. That's why they're spoken of in different terms, you know, one on the mountain, one on the plain. So I also recently saw someone try to reconcile these two things, saying they were the same sermon, by saying that he preached on a plateau. So (laughs) this would have been a level place, but it's raised up. Good grief. Right? So that way you can say, oh, it's both a plain and a mountain. This seems to me to not only be a stretch, but misses the entire point of Matthew's imagery of Jesus on a mountain preaching the new law, right? Because that's Moses, right? And, and it might also even be taking, you know, messing up the whole imagery of Luke being in the level place. So, Sure. I mean, I think the settings are metaphorical, whether, you know, I don't think they're both the same sermon. I don't even know that there was a sermon. Again, many of these uh, sayings, right, are consistent with the Q gospel, right? The yes. last Q gospel. And so there, there are things that Jesus said, the kinds of things that he said, but did he say them all at once? Or twice, you know, in two different ways, similar but different. I don't know. The important thing is that we have the sayings here. The Q gospels lost. We have these gospels. Here are the sayings. Take them to heart. Yeah. Yeah, it's most likely these are the sayings that are passed down, collected, and they contextualize them within different narratives. So Matthew chose the mountain for obvious symbolic reasons. Luke uses the imagery of coming down from the mountain into the plain and standing with them in the plain. That also evokes Moses because Moses came down from the mountain, right? And so there's still that that's going on. But it's clearly different from that of Matthew, right? They're they're presenting this in different contexts. So I did, I just had to chuckle a little bit at the attempt to reconcile this by calling it a plateau. I just, (laughs) it's like, wow. Yeah, so, you know, I'm reminded of Luke 1.1, 1, 1, where Luke tells us what he's doing, right? Yes. You know, he's heard these stories, he's going to try to set the record straight, but he's not an eyewitness, whoever wrote this, right? 
And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. As I picture this scene in my own mind, Ben, you know, if someone is healing, as described, you know, by me in the in the last podcast, distinguishing between healing and curing, not knowing whether curing happens, I'm told that healing is happening. There are some clues that maybe curing is happening too, right? But healing is a social phenomenon, whereas curing is a physical one. And so if you have this charismatic teacher who, when other people are around him, they get healed. If you need healing, you seek him out, right? And when you see him, you want to get close to him and you want to touch him. You want somehow for that power to have access to that power. And we'll see later on the woman who touches the hem of his garment, right? She just, if I could just get close enough to touch him, then, then that power can heal me, right? The same way that he would touch me, I can touch him. If I'm touching him, he's touching me so I can be healed, right? And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So now we get into material that's like Matthew 5. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. There it is, right? The social outcasts. Yeah. Right? When they do that to you, I will be here with you. Right, I'll walk with you. I'll put my arm around you. I'll heal you. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Again, Jesus' followers are leaving everything behind to follow him. So it makes sense that those who wouldn't might be attached to riches, and that might be what's keeping them from following him, right? Mm. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. So this sort of turns around what we see in Matthew and even above here in Luke. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. False prophets are understood as those who tell the people what they want to hear rather than what God would have them hear. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away the cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Now we know this is the golden rule, right? There's a difference between the golden rule and the silver rule. Jesus isn't saying, don't do to people what you wouldn't have done to you. He's saying, and as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. This is proactive. Mm. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. No mention is made here of profit, only of receiving back what's lent, right? That's interesting because there is, of course, in Jewish tradition, there is interest earned on loans, right? 
There's some provisions against usury, though. Well, that would be profiting in the extreme. But, you know, even in, you know, in the times when Christians and Muslims were not allowed to take interest, right, for loans, this is how the Jews became the moneylenders. And they became the bankers, right? And this, you know, come into the Renaissance, and now they are bankrolling the popes and the kings, right? Yeah. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful, and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Now it's interesting, because after some material that looks a lot like Matthew 5, you get, instead of be ye therefore perfect, which is, again, similar to being holy, as the purity culture uh, people would have it, you know, the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And yet, you know, Jesus isn't saying the same thing they're saying, but he does acknowledge the idea of being perfect, right? And here you get, be therefore merciful, as your father is also merciful. This is the, the compassion, the mercy, the enwombment. I'm coining that term, enwombment, <laughs> is what Jesus is all about. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. We've all had this experience. We know that when we forgive, we receive forgiveness, and that when we judge, we receive judgment, and when we condemn, we receive condemnation. Tit for tat, right? Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. And he spake a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? This is a classic comparison, right? The idea of blind people leading people, and that doesn't work, obviously. The disciple is not above his master. But every one that is perfect shall be as his master. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how canst thou say to thy brother, and this can be a sister, remember, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, And then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. This verse can seem out of place, maybe. The idea is you can't pretend to be pious. The fruit will come and you'll be found out, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can put on a show, right? You can put on an act. But in the end, you know, the proof is in the pudding, or in this case, it's in the fruit, right? Right. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Where do the words coming out of your mouth come from? They come from your heart. They come from what is within you. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Right? They draw near unto me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. 
And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And that's this week's reading. Yeah. Well, Ben, thanks for being with me, and thank you all for listening. And thanks to our editors and other volunteers with Latter-day Peace Studies. And thank you for sharing the podcast with your friends. Thank you for reaching out to us and giving us your feedback. Please like and share, subscribe, consider donating, volunteering. We'd love to have you on our team. Thank you again. Thank you, Christopher.